Hi, this is Sunny, and this is a Sunny Look at the Bible. In this seventh week, we needed to get through chapter 17 through 22 of Revelation. But the interesting thing is that we've learned so much as the foundation leading up to it that what we could think is that we're moving into the final chapters of Revelation. So that means that we will be in chronological order learning, okay, what's the end of the end look like? And I know we need to talk about Armageddon and about, you know, Satan being thrown in the pit. And we're going to talk about that. But there are some things in chapter chapters 17, 18, and 19 even, that our that are overlapping chronologically to things we learned in chapter four of Revelation. So what we're what we're accustomed to is we're accustomed to reading a book and the book goes to the next chapter and then it goes to the next chapter and that's in order of events. That's not how Revelation is because it's a series of, of visions that John had. And like we talked in the beginning, the sets of seven uh, from the the trumpets to the bowls, uh, those were symbols that were overlapping. They were not in chronological order. So you'll see that if you read chapter seventeen through twenty two, you you might get a little confused. Like, wait, are we are we flashing back? Yes. You know those really great movies that win all the awards now, which are like the ones that they flash back to childhood. Or this is us is Sean and I's favorite show. In This Is Us, they flash back. But here's the thing. They put a filter on the camera. So if you know you're in a different era, Jack and, and I should know her name, the mom, Jack and anyway, the mom and dad, they look younger than they look older. You can see it. And in movies where they are jumping around, obviously they say things like three months earlier or three years before or five years ahead. And so it, it, lets you jump around with that explanation. In Revelation, it jumps around because it's like when you have a reoccurring dream, but then some things in your dream are in addition to what your last dream was about. But really, it's you getting a dream or a vision that's repeating the same thing. That's what happened to John. So I want to go in chronological order, okay? We're going to start with the rapture. Again, you've seen me through our study even say, gosh, I really could see the argument for post-trip. Like, I feel like post-trip would be that we go, or mid-trip, I should say. I was really, I don't think we'd be raptured after the tribulation, but I was like, I could really see the research and the backing for mid-trip, mid-trip rapture, meaning we would go through some of the tribulation and then in the middle of the tribulation, we would be raptured. I could totally see that. I still can see that. To the end of the book, I go, yeah, people who think that way, I can see where they get that. However, we have more backing, especially if we look at Old Testament books, which I've pointed you to throughout this study, and so do your Bibles. And if you have footnotes in your Bible, it's directing you often to uh, to Ezekiel, Daniel, but also Matthew and Corinthians, 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians. They have a lot of things talking about the same thing that Revelation is. So we have a lot of scriptural backing to find that probably more than likely uh, the most logical, according to scripture, belief would be that the rapture would come. And then after that, the tribulation begins. Now, I want to say this clearly. 
I believe that the reason we're seeing signs that are listed as part of the tribulation is because, like I said last week, we're in a dress rehearsal. God gives us warning, and he has said from the time he died on the cross and resurrected, like, go and tell people. And he has said, I will give you signs. And he's trying to get our attention. I think it's a dress rehearsal for us. I also think that the enemy's using this as a dress rehearsal to see how he can control us, how he can confuse us. There's movies out there like The War of the Worlds or I Am Legend or Alien movies where that is a dress rehearsal of the enemy testing if we all disappeared, if, if a bunch of people disappeared in a rapture. How could the world justify that? Well, it was an alien invasion. Well, there was a, uh, a we've gone through a pandemic. We've been through a couple of those. So now could it be that there was something that killed people like all at once, instantly a third of the population? Because maybe they'll view it as we were killed when we were raptured. And so this is this is a dress rehearsal, but let's start with, the rapture. So the rapture happens. Let's say that comes a year from now or a hundred years from now or tomorrow. The rapture happens and that is a private event. There's, there's a coming back of Jesus. He's come back before. He's coming back again. We're going to talk about that. But the rapture is a private event. It says he comes like a thief in the night. It will happen, the Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye. The rapture in the Bible is not talked about in the word rapture. So I've even seen some people comment on my Instagram or my Facebook posts of this saying rapture isn't even talked about in the Bible. But in the Greek word was harpazo. And it's exactly that. It's a taking up of the souls. Harpazo was used. So yes, the word rapture wasn't used, but the Greek word harpazo was. Many words weren't used in the English that we use, but in the Greek or the Hebrew they were. Jesus comes according to the Bible, and raptures us before he brings any judgment. That's why we can say probably the rapture comes before the tribulation. He comes before he brings judgment because he knows that we are imposing our own discipline and judgment upon ourselves on this earth right now. So his further judgment will come after he raptures his people or his church. He comes for his people. Who are his people? People who have accepted him. Jews and Gentiles. The only difference between Jews and Gentiles is Jews by birth were God's chosen people. Gentiles, when Jesus came, he came for all people. Anyone who is a Gentile is just not a Jew. So it doesn't mean, well, I'm not a Jew or a Gentile. Yes, you are. If you're not from Jewish descent, you're a Gentile. And he came for all. So anyone who accepts him as the Messiah, as the savior of their life and this world, you are his people. You are considered his bride. He's committed to his bride. His bride is the church and the church is the grouping of people, not in a building, but it's the people who believe in him are considered his church. So the events that come in heaven, this is, and I sent you a little outline and I'm expanding on it. I sent this to my registered group of people. Again, a good reason to go and register for my group so you can get all of these tools. But the events that happen in heaven after the the rapture, okay? First, the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ for the good and the bad that we did. Now, this is us who were raptured. The good, I wouldn't even say good. The people who were raptured because they accepted Jesus will appear, all of us, before the seat of Christ for the good and the bad. So if I'm rude to the server and I don't honor my mother and I have ill intent and I try to take somebody out at work, but for the most part, I accept Jesus. 
And Jesus says, you were messed up as everybody has messed up things in their life, but you submitted to me as your savior. You get to heaven, you're going to get to account for how you treated waitresses and waiters because they were just scum to you. You're going to account for how you didn't honor your mother and father. You're going to account for everything good and bad that you did. Uh, some would go as far as to say, we're going to see it on a screen. Well, in heaven, it's going to be, we're going to see more than just a screen. It's going to be more than just a hologram. It will replay the things that no one knew, but we did in the dark. We're accountable for that, even when we are raptured. So I may get into heaven, even if I didn't do good, all good, because he gave his life for me. Uh, but don't, we also want to get into heaven and get some rewards. I hope that I get to heaven because it also said we will get rewards. There will be jewels in our crown. I want to get there. And if it's like the Oscars, I'd rather be on the nominee list for a good life lived. Even if I don't win the Oscar, this is all facetious. Uh, but rather than I get to attend, again, facetious, but I just slid in the door but I actually did more harm than good. But because Jesus suffered and died, there are people, this is how people can live their whole life, sinning and in op opposition to anything Jesus. And then on their deathbed, accept him. And those who are dead, but accepted him on the dead deathbed will be raptured. And those who are living will be raptured, whether their clothes go with them or just their soul goes, they will be raptured. But the life you live does matter you will stand before Christ. Then in heaven, the marriage of the lamb. And I want to explain this. In biblical times, a marriage involved two major events. There was the betrothal and then there was the wedding. They were separated by a period of time in which the two individuals were considered husband and wife, even beforehand. And they were under the obligation of faithfulness. This is why the betrothal of Joseph and Mary was so scandalous because Mary ends up pregnant. So they're considered husband and wife, but they know they didn't consummate the marriage yet. So how'd she get pregnant? pregnant because she wasn't just engaged. She was considered under obligation to Joseph. So this is how it worked back then. So right now we're betrothed. We're under un obligation to God. Okay. So then the wedding began with a procession to the bride's house, which then was followed by a return to the house of the groom for the marriage feast. By analogy, the church is committed to to Christ by faith. And we wait for our heavenly groom to come for his bride, us, and return to heaven for the marriage feast, which lasts throughout eternity. How cool is that? How cool is that parallel? Okay, then in heaven still, the singing of two special songs. That was in Revelation 4 and 5. You can go back to early weeks, probably the second week or third week of our study. And it talked about the two heavenly songs where even the heavenly council and the angels, we don't turn into angels when we die. They exist. They exist now. They've always existed. Uh, the heavenly council, there's a council like a Senate and a, and a House of Congress that have existed with God separate from the angels. They begin to sing. We begin to sing. We talked about holy, holy, holy. Like it will be crazy in heaven that, that connecting after the marriage Supper of the Lamb, and then the singing. And then the Lamb now receives the seven sealed scroll. Okay, now remember, we learned this early on in our study that in Revelation 5, the scroll would be given to the Lamb and only the Lamb could actually open the scroll. That's the chronological order. So that's why we're going in order of things today because we've overlapped so many 
verses in Revelation. Okay, now the events on earth after the rapture, the tribulation. The tribulation is seven years of two segments. It talks about 42 months. You've seen this throughout Revelation, 42 months. It also talks about three and a half years. Well, there's two sets of three and a half years. And so there's the first part of the seven years, 42 months or three and a half years. And then there's the second part of the seven-year tribulation. That's called the Great Tribulation, another 42 months. So the tribulation begins when the Antichrist signs a covenant with Israel, bringing peace to Israel and Jerusalem. So the Antichrist will not be a baby born when we are raptured. In fact, it will probably, he will have been um, raised by humans he may not even know that he is going to turn to wicked ways. He probably won't know, but he will rise to power. He will uh, not only rise to power, but he will already have had the education and the platform because he has the power when the rapture happens and people won't connect this, but we can connect this, that he'll sign a covenant with Israel bringing peace. And can I tell you, I've been to Israel now a couple times and I understand that is what the non-Messianic Jews, the difference between Orthodox Jews and Messianic Jews is Messianic Jews believe, and they probably started to believe when Jesus died on the cross and resurrected, but the Jews who are holding out for the real Messiah, they do not believe in Jesus. And so they're waiting on peace. They're waiting. They're still waiting on military and economic peace. They're waiting for the temple to be rebuilt, even though Messianic Jews understand, and we understand as Gentiles and as believers, we understand that Jesus didn't need a temple anymore. We get to live with the Holy Spirit in us. So the non-believing Jews of about, you know, the non-Messianic Jews, they're waiting. So when this happens, they're going to be all in for the guy who brought peace and signed the treaty. So the first half of the tribulation is where in Revelation 6, the seven sealed judgments are opened. Also in Revelation 7, this is where the first part of the tribulation, 144,000 Jewish believers begin their evangelistic ministry. 144,000 Jewish believers. Now what this means is that we can question or wonder, why weren't they raptured? Well, maybe they were and they come back. We don't know. Or maybe they at the rapture are like, aha, and maybe it truly is 144,000 Jews who now, after all this time, they go that the Bible, the whole, the New Testament that we haven't been believing it, it, that was the Messiah long ago. What we don't know is what, who are those 144,000? We don't know if they were raptured and come back or if they uh, were on earth and immediately they become the evangelistic ministry. Okay, then the midpoint of the tribulation is when the Antichrist brings his covenant, breaks his covenant with Israel and he invades their land. So then the Antichrist sets up desolation, desolation of the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. So the Antichrist, when he's bringing peace, probably the temple is rebuilt, which right now is under um, Islamic control. It is now, right now, the reason there's a wailing wall. And if you go to Israel with us, which please come to Israel with us in February, it's going to be incredible. This trip is still on. We're going to uh, take you to the wailing wall. And the reason it's the wailing wall is it is one side of the temple, the original temple that they believe, and it is, it's the closest geographically to the other side of the wall where the Holy of Holies of the temple was. So people go there and they 
literally rock and they read the Torah and they uh, are praying. And you also see Gentiles or Christians go and they roll up pieces of paper that have prayers written on them and they stick them in the cracks of the wailing wall. You'll see it. If you Googled it, you could see that. That is where the temple is. And the Jews are waiting for that to be taken back over, which the Antichrist will probably rebuild the temple for them. But then the Antichrist midpoint of the tribulation, he desolates, he also, he'll probably destroy it, or what he'll do is he'll put, uh, as we learned earlier in Revelation, a graven image at the temple. So sometimes, sometime during these events, um, the Antichrist is then violently killed. Maybe he'll be killed because um, it's a result of war or assassination. Maybe they'll go, this guy just made an image of himself, which we learned about early in Revelation, and they will say, we're not, this is, this, we've been, we've been um, misled, and he might be assassinated. So then Satan, it says, is cast down from heaven. We talked about that last week, like being, wasn't he only cast down from heaven back in, um, when he was Lucifer in the very beginning. Uh, so now, cast down from heaven, we're just going to skim over that. Basically, God has already cast him out of heaven. Does he have access to heaven? We talked about that in weeks past. Uh, or basically is it saying that he now makes war with heaven, I'm sorry, with woman, with the woman who we talked about last week, who is Israel. And he uses the two beasts to persecute Israel. And the two beasts, so Satan, obviously, is in, he's the dragon we talked about last week. Then the two beasts, they're persecuting Israel. So it went from peace in Israel to now persecution. So now the faithful Jewish remnant in Petra in modern Jordan, um, where they are divinely protected, they'll be protected during the tribulation. Revelation 12, I want you to mark this down, Revelation 12, 15 through 17 talked about that, that they, the remnant of the Jews, those who now turn to God, will be protected during the tribulation. That talked about it in Revelation 12, 15, and that they believe is in modern Jordan, which used to be Petra. Okay, now also the Antichrist is miraculously raised from the dead to the awestruck amazement of the entire world. So now we have the Antichrist raised from the dead. Didn't the Messiah do that? So again, it's going to create confusion because after his resurrection from the dead, the Antichrist gains political control over the 10 kings. Revelation 17 talks about this over the 10 kings of the reunited Roman Empire. Now, it probably won't be called the Roman Empire, but back in John's time, that was the context. It will be these European countries that have come together. Three of the kings will be killed by the Antichrist and the other seven will submit. This isn't going to look like ancient war. It's going to look like modern war. Then this is where, when it said in Revelation 11 that two witnesses are, are sent to earth, they begin their three and a half year ministry. It wasn't back earlier chronologically. This is when the two witnesses begin their ministry. Now the last half of the tribulation, the last half of the tribulation is considered the great tribulation. This is when the Antichrist blasphemies God and the false prophet that we know is the other beast that comes on the scene and props up the Antichrist. The false prophet comes from a spiritual context and they perform great signs and wonders. They promote false worship of the Antichrist. Who will this be? It may be someone, whereas the Antichrist is someone political, the false prophet 
is someone spiritual and they're pushing forward the agenda of the Antichrist who is making people think because you died and resurrected, you probably are the Messiah. Again, we, the people left on earth will not be confused by this if they've ever heard from anyone or read the Bible or they just listen to the Holy Spirit. This is now when the mark of the beast 666 is introduced and enforced by the false prophet. Again, this is Revelation 13 verses 16 through 18. So chronologically, the mark of the beast, the 666, is not going to happen this year unless, I mean, it couldn't in, because we have three and a half years before that happens. What, when we see things like the the Bill Gates, uh, Microsoft, I should call it, 2020-06-06-06 patent, that could be people messing with our head. We talked about that. Or again, that could be part of the dress rehearsal that we've seen. You know, it's the cry wolf thing. And I know cry wolf doesn't come from the Bible, but it makes a lot of sense that if we've heard about aliens, we've heard about life on other planets, and then suddenly this, this happens in a few years and people don't... Uh, attest it to Jesus in a rapture and a Messiah. They they talk about it like it's science fiction or the mark of the beast. We've seen this again and again. There's been microchips for three years already. There's been vaccination microchip tracking. There's been the phone with, with AI technology to have the points on our face known and the government is watching and listening. And, and you know, I don't know, I probably, you'd have to research this more, but a, a democratic, uh, bill that was was brought forward I'm hearing I don't know that it's true about and it's labeled 6666 so four sixes who knows if it's true but here's what it does it desensitizes us it desensitizes us so that when the tribulation and those who don't go in the rapture say oh for decades I've been hearing about the 666 this isn't even the number 666, which the Bible's clear that through understanding, and you should understand that this is more complicated than three numbers, but is it is the number or the name of a leader. And 666 was just saying that Nero was an awful mean dictator and Hitler was an awful mean dictator. It's not saying that you have to watch out for the number 666. It's saying that you have to watch out for that dictator who is a false prophet and you have to weigh it against the Bible. Okay. Then also after the marking of 666, again, not necessarily the numbers, just that you have to bow down, you have to worship. Maybe it'll be a mark on the, the head and the, the forehead and the hand, or maybe that is that you will, with your head, with your whole mind, you will worship and bow down to this person, and you are stamped in your mind as part of that force for the Antichrist. So after that, this... Uh, the Antichrist will be fully energized or possessed by Satan. So he may not have for a while, probably even growing up as a kid, he was not possessed by the devil. But in Revelation 13, we talked about it, Satan will energize or take over the Antichrist at some point during the tribulation. And the Antichrist dominates the world politically, religiously, and economically, all of it. So the trumpet judgments are now unleashed through the final half of the tribulation. That goes all the way back to Revelation 8 and 9. So see how chronologically we, we thought we were learning about the trumpets early on, but this is when the trumpets are unleashed. So knowing he has only a short time left, Satan intensifies his relentless and merciless persecution of the Jewish and the Gentile people. So everybody on earth, anybody who believes in Jesus, they will figure that out. Again, probably because... Uh, we will either be marked or somehow, just like think about the um, 
the Holocaust. Think about when they had to have on their sleeve who who they were in submission to. So some had Star of David and some had the uh, the symbol of Hitler and so or the Nazi symbol. And so this is this is how they will know. There will be an identification that may not be the number 666, but there will be an identification. So Satan and the Antichrist will be relentless in their persecution. Now at the end of the tribulation, that's where the bold judgments are pulled out in rapid succession. Remember we talked about when it gets to the point where there have been many warning signs, there have been many of the seven poured out on the earth. The bold judgments are rapid. We said that would come quickly and that's Revelation 16 talked about the bold judgments. Now the campaign of Armageddon begins. Again, Revelation 16, 16, we left off there last week that Armageddon begins. Now Armageddon is the battle of the beast at Megiddo. And we actually, when we were in Israel, we saw Megiddo. It's crazy. In fact, Napoleon said this is the best place for all nations to fight because of how it is. It's actually more of a valley. So it's great because you can have a war there where you can be on the upper part and then you bring the enemy in through the valley and you can wage war on them. So even though Megiddo is more of a valley than a mountain, it it helps for fighting. Um, and then it talks about that the kings of the east, and that's why Russia and China are on the radar for what happens when they come against Israel, because they'll be, the, it says the kings of the east or the, the rulers of the east will come that way. And the force known, uh, as Magog will attack from the east, and Magog is the nation of Russia now. It's, it's presently called Russia. So that's why it's always been on the radar. You hear a lot of conspiracy theorists and you hear a lot of theologians talk about it. Okay, then it talks about the commercial Babylon is destroyed in Revelation 18. Now it's like, how is this in the middle of this Armageddon? How is this also destroyed? Because not only is there a battle of Armageddon, but when this final thing happens, it says that the kings of the earth in Revelation 18, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her <clears throat> will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. That's why these intersect, these verses about the commercial uh, destruction of Babylon. And what Babylon is, is all worldliness. Babylon also is considered, or the Bible wants us to understand that any city that thinks, oh, we're powerful. Oh, look at, look at our merchant trade. Look at our power. Look at our money. I think about this, just putting this out there. Cities like Las Vegas and Sin City, cities like uh, New York, the Big Apple, and uh, cities and, and countries even uh, like China, where you don't have, where they have taken upon themselves all of the luxury. I think of Dubai and I've heard from people who've gone there that when you've seen something rich and you go to Dubai, it's like you've never seen anything that costs more or more money is spent. Like it is for somebody who's used to luxury, it's shocking. And I think about how it says in this chapter 18, it says for in one hour, your judgment has come. So when Armageddon's happening and it does say the smoke of the burning They'll see it and they'll stand at a distance in fear of torment. They will realize that no matter how great of a 
nation, how great of a city, how great of a worldly thing we built for ourselves that people will stand and fear the torment. Then it also says around the same time frame, the two witnesses are killed by the Antichrist, but they're resurrected by God three and a half days later. Again, the chronological timing puts them closer to the end of the tribulation. It says though that Christ returns to the Mount of Olives. He slays the armies gathered against him throughout the land from Megiddo to Petra. Okay, so what happens is the Armageddon happens and this is when Jesus' second coming ensues, okay? So the second coming versus the rapture, so the second coming is that it will be public. It's not like a thief in the night. It's not where nobody saw it coming. The second coming of Jesus will be public. It will be seen by all. It is accompanied by sadness and weeping. It says that the second coming of Jesus is a sad day for earth. Israel will mourn when they realized Jesus had come and that was his Messiah all along. Zechariah 12, 10 says they will weep like a firstborn son that died. Can you imagine they, that Jesus came from the line of Israel, from the line of David, and that all of this time, Israel, the people of Israel who never submitted to Jesus yet, will we'll see it and we'll mourn at a level that we have not believed in the firstborn, our firstborn son this whole time. That's a new level of mourning. And it will, it's part of the judgment of not submitting to the Messiah and letting the Holy Spirit soften the hearts of people. The second coming of Jesus also will bring an end to terrorism and violence. And it says he rides in on a white horse. This time he's not riding in on a donkey, like on Palm Sunday. On this, the first time, it so in the Bible in the Old Testament, they prophesied that, that the Messiah would ride in on a white horse. That's what they were waiting for. Instead, Jesus, because white horse represents military power. At Palm Sunday, before Jesus died on the cross and resurrected, he rode in on a donkey, which represents humility and peace. And he came in on a donkey, but this time it's not in peace. He comes and, and there he puts an end to it. It says in Revelation 19, verse 17 and 18, that the birds gather to feed on the carnage of the battle. Okay. Now after the tribulation. So now the tribulation is over because the second coming of Jesus has happened. Armageddon is complete. Now, Daniel 12, 12, if this relates, and it may very well, because most of the Old Testament prophecy, it totally aligns with Revelation. Not most, all of it aligns. So Daniel 12, 12 says maybe there's an interval or a transition period of 75 days. Interesting, right? Could that be 75 days where there's just a time for mourning? There's a time for the birds to eat the carnage? It'll take them a long time. That's pretty gross. But there's a transition period of 75 days. Then the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. That's in Revelation 19, 20 through 21. Satan is bound in the abyss, Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3. And now the Old Testament and the tribulation saints are resurrected. Now, this is in Revelation 24. And you go, what? They're resurrected. This is the resurrection. This is not the rapture. Even though the rapture, they say the dead in Christ will rise. We get that. Those living will meet him in the air. This actually isn't until Revelation 24. And chronologically, this is when the Old Testament saints 
And the tribulation saints that had to go through that, they're resurrected. Now, why Old Testament saints? Because remember, Old Testament saints didn't have the opportunity that New Testament saints had. The opportunity to accept Jesus. Old Testament, so there's a lot of belief around here, like what happened before Jesus uh, died and resurrected? How could they believe in a resurrecting Savior when they came before him? Here's the point. There's a, maybe a different... And I say maybe, there's maybe a different standard for the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints because, because the Old Testament saints didn't have the same opportunity as the New Testament saints. Very interesting. Now, there's a thousand-year reign. This is next chronologically, a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. This is Revelation 24 through 6. So who will be on earth in the millennium? I'm just going to rapid fire. Who will be on earth in the millennium? Because we wonder, even after the rapture and all these judgments of the great tribulation, how will there still be people? But there'll still be people, many people left on earth. So after Jesus returns, he will judge those who survive the great tribulation in the judgment of the nations. Matthew 25, 31 talks about that. This is not a judgment about salvation, but a judgment of moral worthiness and an entrance into the millennial kingdom of Jesus. The unworthy will be sent into eternal damnation and the worthy will be allowed in Jesus' millennial kingdom. During the millennium, Israel will be the superpower of the world. It will be leading the nation of the earth and the center of Israel will be the mountain of the Lord's house, which is the temple mount. We'll see that in Israel if you go with us. It will be the capital of the government of the Messiah. All nations will flow from the capital. Again, I hope that you caught this, uh, but Jerusalem is the geographical center of the world. Geographically, it is pinpointed as the center. So that's where the government will then reign for the millennium. During the millennium, the citizens of earth will acknowledge and submit to Jesus, and it will be a time of perfectly administered, enforced righteousness on earth. During the millennium, there will be no more war. war. There will still be conflicts between nations and individuals because there's still people. Uh, but they will be justly and decisively resolved by Jesus and those who reign with him. It isn't the reign of the Messiah itself that that will change the heart of man. Citizens of earth will still need to trust in Jesus and his work on their behalf for their personal salvation during the millennium. But war and armed conflict will not be tolerated during his reign. Okay, a couple more notes I found. During the millennium, the way animals relate to each other and to humans will be transformed. A little child will be safe and able to lead a wolf or a leopard or a young lion or a bear. Even the danger of predators like cobras and vipers will be gone. In Genesis 9, 2 through 3, the Lord gave Noah and all the mankind after him permission to eat meat. At the same time, the Lord put the dread of man and animals so they would not be effortless prey for humans. That's during the time of Noah. Now in the reign of the Messiah, that is reversed. For this reason, many think that in the reign of the Messiah, the millennium, humans will return to being vegetarians as it seems they were before. Where do we find that? Isaiah 11, 6 through 9 and Genesis 9, 2 through 3. During the millennium, this is my favorite part, and there was much more I read, researched, looked into, but this is my favorite part of the millennium, even though I won't be here, because I'm going to go to heaven first. During the millennium, King David will have a prominent place in the millennial earth ruling over Israel. My favorite Bible character, King David, will, be a, will have a prominent place. Love that. 
Okay, next chronologically, Satan's final revolt and defeat. Yes, Satan comes back and tries again after the thousand years are completed. And you go, but I thought Armageddon was it. No, that was a war of many nations. That was a Magog thing. That was Russian kings coming from the east. The, the Euphrates River, it says, has been a boundary against war. But the Euphrates River, if you remember reading that in the last few chapters, the Euphrates River, it says, will dry up. And if that dries up, that means that the kings of the east can come in. That's part of the whole plan that Armageddon then continues. But we have past Armageddon. We have passed the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus. And now... A battle ends before it even begins. So Satan tries one more time, but it says in Revelation 20, verse 9 and 10. Uh, I'm checking our time. A battle, that, and the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived, deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So he tried, and this is where he gets thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. That's also where the false, false prophets are. So now we're at the great white throne of judgment. I also sent you a graphic if you are one of my uh, registered Bible study people. Again, we'll put that link even in our podcast. We'll put that link in the YouTube um, verbiage so that you can become a part of that so I can ongoingly get you stuff, which might not be very often. But uh, also, I sent a graphic that showed the difference between the two judgment seats, the judgment seat of Christ versus the great white throne of judgment, because there is a difference. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 talks about the great white throne of judgment. Here's a breakdown. It's for those who don't believe in Jesus. No one will have gotten away with anything. You know, when the Bible says in Proverbs and throughout the Bible, it says your, your um, enemies, they will, there will be, uh, there will be consequences. And some of us go, I don't see them getting any consequences on earth. No one will have gotten away with anything. Remember when we submit to Jesus and we go to heaven and because we believed in him, we will stand before him for the good and the bad. But at the great white throne of judgment, it will be the people who still don't believe in Jesus, but they will not get away with anything. They are the names who aren't in the book of life. The this will be the destruction of the pre present heavens and earth. And this is also the time during this great white throne of judgment that there is a creation of new heavens and earth. So that, that follows right after that throne of judgment. And now there is a creation of new heaven and earth. And Revelation 21, 16 says the city is laid out as a square. So this is interesting. The new Jerusalem will be equal in length, height, and width. That means it will either be like a cube or a pyramid. I tend to think more like a cube, but a cube is reminiscent of the holy place when the tabernacle was um, moved around in the desert. When in the Old Testament, God said, this is how you are to worship me in the tabernacle, but also how it was then King David uh, came up with the plans and his son uh, Solomon was the one to build the original temple. It would be reminiscent of that. But listen to this, because you, if you've been to Israel, you already know it's big, but you, you know, that's not big enough to hold everybody who's going to be on the new earth. So it says that it measured, that he measured the city with the reed and it was 12,000 furlongs. What that equals is 1,500 miles. So this is the same distance if you took Maine and the land between Maine and Florida. The square footage 
the actual square footage. So think length. The square footage would be approximately the size of the moon. I don't know if we could all fit on the moon, but basically what one uh, author said is a city of this size is too large for the imagination to take in. John is certainly conveying the, the idea of splendor and more importantly, that of room for all. Henry Morris, he's the author, says, guessing that there will be 100 billion people in the human race throughout history and that 20% of them will be saved, it's very sad that that would be it, calculated that each person would have a block with about 75 acres on each face to call their own. This is highly speculative, but illustrates the point that there's plenty of room in the new Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem is the center of the geographical earth. Why wouldn't we have the center of it be like that? But then the size isn't what it is now. The size is like from Maine to Florida and then in a square dimension. According to the measure of a man, it says, you might wonder, what does that mean? According to the measure of the man, that is of an angel. It's saying that the cubit measure of a man is also the cubit measure of an angel. So it's saying it's clear that this is probably 1,500. It's the same measurement, 1,500 um, miles. Okay. Revelation 22.1 says about the new earth, clear water runs out to the sea and the water is so clear it's like nothing we've ever seen. It also says that in the new earth, in the middle of its street on an, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree for, were for the healing of the nations. A couple things I want to point out, and I'm definitely just pointing out the things I enjoyed so much about learning about the new earth, is that the Bible began with the tree of life. Genesis 3.22 talked about the tree of life. Man wasn't allowed to eat it, and after the sin that he committed, he couldn't have a part in it again. But what is so cool is that in this new earth, the tree of life, and it sounds like it's there, but it's almost like it lines the beautiful stream. And every month, not in the seasons of once a year, but every month it bears new fruit. And in the trees are healing. Love all of that. It says that we will see God's face. His people will see his face. And I love what Spurgeon said. He said, they shall see his face, by which I understand two things. First, that they shall literally and physically with their risen bodies actually look into the face of Jesus. And secondly, that spiritually their mental faculties shall, shall be enlarged so that they shall be enabled to look into the very heart and soul and character of Christ. So as to understand him, his work, his love, his all in all, as they ever, never understood him before. I love that. So that's the chronological order. Now, finishing out our study on the book of Revelation and closing this book out, there's a few things I want to point out in the very last chapter, because not only is it the last chapter of this book, it's the last chapter of the entire Bible, the entire closed canon, meaning the words of Jesus. And in red letters, it says, Jesus declares in verse chapter 22, verse 12 and 13, I am coming with quickly. It says, and behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root we talked about that early in this study. I am the offspring of David. We talked about that in the first part of the study. I am the bright and morning star. We unpacked that in the very first week of this study. He's like a good preacher. He's like a good comedian. 
Imagine where they get their creativity that he says, I am the beginning and the end. He brings it full circle to the end. And he says, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Even to the end of his book, he is saying, will you just come? It's like he's saying all of these visions, all of this prophecy, all of this that I just unpacked through my servant, John, it all wraps up in, will you just turn to me? What is the point of revelation? That we have a chance and that we are to take this opportunity. This pandemic is a dress rehearsal on will anything get our attention? The things we struggle with when we get angry with God because he, he, we think he took someone we greatly loved when he didn't take anyone. He didn't need them to be an angel for him in heaven. We've talked about all the weird cliches. All of the hardship in our life is a, an opportunity for us to turn to him because he's waiting patiently. But he says, I'm coming quickly and all you have to do is come. And so if we miss this practical lesson from the book of Revelation, it's it, it, we're missing so much because this is a lesson of readiness. He's saying, I am coming quickly. And then he ties up the whole Old Testament and New Testament and says, don't add and don't subtract from my word. And in the last verse of the Old Testament, he the Old Testament ended with a curse. It said in Malachi 4, 6, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Then Jesus is the beginning of the New Testament. He is born. The four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling of the life of Jesus because Jesus said, no, God said it's not enough. So are we in the last days? Absolutely. We are. We are in the last days. What does that mean for uh what does that mean for us that we're to look up? That this is a dress rehearsal that we should be very glad we're getting to live through and we're getting to turn to Jesus. And in fact, I want to point you to what is our response? It is to have hope in the Lord in the future. It's also to, by the word of our testimony, the revelation talked about that, by the word of our testimony, we will help people come to Jesus. Thanks for joining me today. For more great content like this, check out Cheery Conversations, available on all podcast platforms. You can also go to SunnyHennessy.com to connect with me and find out all the things going on in my head at all times. See you next week.